The White House now says we are in an urgent situation with the possible Russian invasion of Ukraine imminent. The lead starts right now. The Biden administration telling Americans in Ukraine to leave immediately. This as the National Security Advisor says Russia could launch an invasion of Ukraine at any moment. Then, a state of emergency. Canadian lawmakers trying to get things moving across the border as U.S. automakers are being forced to use charter planes to get much-needed parts to their American plants. And shooting that seems terrifyingly similar to the Ahmad Arbery case, except thankfully this victim survived. After they fired the initial shots, they continued to chase me out of the city again, I say so. If you did succeed the first time, then I could just only imagine what they was going to do if they had caught me. A black FedEx driver chased down and shot at by two white men while delivering packages in Mississippi. And now he's speaking out. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we begin this hour, of course, with breaking news. An urgent warning from the White House that Russia could start to invade Ukraine at any moment. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan just a short time ago announcing that the West cannot predict Russian President Vladimir Putin's next move, but that the situation is more dire than ever. We are not saying that a decision has been taken, a final decision has been taken by President Putin. What we are saying is that we have a sufficient level of concern based on what we are seeing on the ground and what our intelligence analysts have picked up uh, that we are sending this clear message. Yes, it is an urgent message because we are in an urgent situation. Russia has all the forces it needs to conduct a major military action. Sullivan echoing what President Biden said yesterday, urging any American in Ukraine to leave that country now. Sullivan also warning Russia today and saying, warning that Russia could choose to launch a, quote, rapid assault on the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, where nearly three million people live. President Biden spoke today with European and NATO leaders to discuss the growing threat. He's expected to call President Putin tomorrow, a source tells CNN. We're covering this story across the globe. Alex Marquardt is live for us from East Central Ukraine. Kylie Atwood is at the U.S. State Department. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at the White House. Caitlin, let me start with you. How drastic is this change in tone from the White House today? Quite drastic. I mean, Jake, they have been warning about the idea that this is a possibility. But remember, just last week, the White House had made the intentional decision to stop using the word imminent to describe the likelihood of an an attack because they felt like it was sending the wrong message. And now today you have the National Security Advisor coming out and telling Americans that if they are still in Ukraine, they need to get out in the next 24 to 48 hours. And Jake, we're told that this warning and these warnings that uh, this could attack could happen well before the Olympics end is coming after there was an abruptly scheduled meeting in the Situation Room last night with the president's top national security aides and President Biden himself at times as they are now offering warnings about what they think could happen and how quickly. The way that he has built up his forces and put them in place, uh, along with the other indicators that that we have collected through intelligence, uh, makes it clear to us that there is a very distinct possibility that Russia will choose to act militarily. And there is uh, reason to believe that that could happen Uh, on a reasonably swift time frame. Now, Jake, they say they can't pinpoint what that time frame is going to look like, but they did say the possibilities of what an invasion could look like. And that's why they're offering these grim warnings to Americans who are still there, saying that there will be no large-scale U.S. military evacuation, kind of similar to the one that you saw in Afghanistan. You will not see that happen in Ukraine, according to the president's top team. And they're also saying that that could involve aerial bombings, that could involve missile strikes, that invasion if Putin does decide to go in. Though he said the assessment still stands that they do not believe 
believe he has made a final decision. And of course, that comes as President Biden is scheduled to speak with President Putin tomorrow. That Jake, that'll be their first conversation since the end of December. Alex, National Security Advisor Sullivan said that Russia has all the forces it needs to attack Ukraine. What are you hearing from the Ukrainian government today? Well, Jake, you're not seeing nearly the same level of alarm as you're hearing from the United States. We're not getting briefings uh, from Ukrainian national security officials like the ones that we're getting from NATO national security officials. That's not to say that they're dismissing it. They're taking this uh, very very seriously, but they're not speaking with the same ominous tones uh, as NATO officials are. Now, uh, Ukraine is soon to be facing Russian military action on three different fronts. The Ukrainian foreign minister is saying uh, today that they are demanding an answer from Russia uh, as to exactly what their troops are up to. Even if they were to get an answer, you can imagine Russia is just going to say that we're just carrying out exercises, uh, some of the biggest exercises since the Cold War. Uh, Ukraine's National Security Council has said that they are very much on the lookout for instances of provocation, which Russia has used in the past uh, to justify military action. They think that that could be uh, a pretext for invasion. The U.S. has said the same thing and talked about some of the plans uh, that the uh, Russians may have. Uh, But at the same time, the spokesman for the president here, Zelensky, said that the security situation has not risen to a high enough level to justify these travel advisories for Americans and other countries, to justify these drawdowns uh, at other embassies. Uh, And the defense ministry is saying that we have seen reports like this before. We have heard noises like this before. Jake, I can tell you on the street, it is. we are hearing similar things. This is uh, just after 11 o'clock at night on a Friday night. It feels like a Friday night. People are in the bars. They're in the restaurants. I've spoken with uh, Ukrainians. My colleagues have spoken with Ukrainians in Kyiv. Uh, they are saying we're not worried. It's not something we're thinking about. So, Jake, there does remain still a great disparity, a real difference between the attitudes of Ukrainians, both on the street uh, and officials, than that of, uh, of, of NATO capitals, uh, both in, the, in Europe and the U.S., Jake. And Kylie Atwood at the State Department, what is the Biden administration doing for Americans on the ground in Ukraine if they want to leave? Well, Jake, we've just learned that the State Department is actually picking up the phone and calling Americans in Ukraine. I just spoke with one uh, a few minutes ago who said he got a phone call uh, from the State Department asking him about his plans to leave the country. Now, he is not going to be leaving the country, but the State Department wanted to make sure that him and his family had seen all of the very explicit messaging. State Department has put out for some time now, dating back to late last year, and then National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan being very explicit about the kind of situation that Americans could face if they don't leave, and he said they should be leaving in the next 24 to 48 hours. Those kinds of uh, risks that they are assuming include putting their own lives on the line, because he said that if there were to be a Russian invasion into Ukraine, it would be carried out most likely with aerial bombings and with missiles that wouldn't discriminate. It'd kill civilians, and that could include Americans. Jake? All right. Thanks to all three of you. Joining us now live to discuss our retired Air Force general and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander for Europe, Philip Breedlove, and CNN Global Affairs Analyst Susan Glasser. General Breedlove, let me start with you. These new warnings from the White House, they're stark. Do you believe that Putin is going to order an invasion of Ukraine within the next few days? Well, like others, uh, I'm not going to speculate, but here's what is for sure. Mr. Putin has assembled all the capabilities he needs to execute several options. The option that is being talked about in the north in Kyiv, one through the Donbass, and one in the south along Mariupol towards Crimea. 
So the bottom line is people need to look at what Mr. Putin has available and take that very seriously. But General, historically, does he do this if he doesn't intend to invade? Well, he uses the tools that he assembles. I think he wants to accomplish his goals without fighting here. He wants us to capitulate. If you read the two documents that he sent to us and said, sign them, or else we will use other measures, I think were the words at the time. Uh, All the time he's been assembling tools. Those tools have been rather administrative until about a week or so ago, and now they have been moving into tactical positions, and they have been reinforced with all of the enablers that make them capable of doing what they're there to do. Susan Glasser, the the Biden administration has dramatically shifted its tone about the urgency of this threat just in the last day. What does that tell you? Well, thanks, Jake. I think, first of all, it does communicate quite clearly that they do not see uh, viable prospects right now for a diplomatic end to this crisis. And uh, this comes after a flurry of diplomatic activity, including the French President Macron flying to uh, uh, see Putin in person this week, the first Western leader to do so in the middle of this crisis. And the result of that has not been any viable path uh, for Putin to walk down. And that's why I think you're seeing so much more emphasis on the fact that the military units are not only in place along the border, but moving into the potential uh, for actual action to take place. I've been very skeptical from the beginning that there was a real diplomatic outcome here possible just because Putin has made such completely unrealistic demands. He's essentially asking NATO and the United States to turn back the clock, not just to 1997 and NATO expansion, the first round of it, but in some ways turn back to the clock, uh, you know, decades to the earlier period of the Cold War. And uh, this is just not obviously the kind of thing that you could negotiate with Vladimir Putin about. He doesn't believe that Ukraine is a legitimate independent state. And that, of course, is uh, at the heart of this crisis right now. General Breedlove, the White House, uh, President Biden specifically, is warning Americans in Ukraine to leave now. Uh, Biden said, if Americans choose to stay, the U.S. will not send in troops to get you. Uh, If Russia invades before some Americans can get out, uh, could that be dire? Would they be uh, in danger? Well, it depends on the option that he chooses. If he he chooses the option in the center near Donbass, very few Americans are going to be threatened. If he chooses the option in the south along the coast, Mariupol to Crimea, few Americans will probably be involved. But if he chooses the option in the north and actually comes across the Belarusian border into the north towards Kiev, then Americans are going to be at risk. Susan, if Putin chooses to invade Ukraine before the Olympics wraps up, would that upset Chinese President Xi Jinping? Would that uh, have an effect, a damaging effect on the the China-Russia alliance right now? Well, Jake, it's very significant that uh, Vladimir Putin flew outside the country and met with Xi Jinping. It's the first uh, foreign leader that she has met with uh, in the two years of the COVID pandemic. They released an extraordinary 5,300-word document, if not of outright alliance, certainly a strategic partnership against uh, the West as they see it. uh, And I think that clearly Putin would have communicated with Xi uh, some of his planning on Ukraine and had a discussion on this very topic. But, uh, you know, Putin has has used the cover of the Olympics before to take military action. So uh, you can't rule it out when you have uh, something like 130,000 plus Russian troops on the border right now 
with Ukraine. And General Breedlove, a senior defense official, tells us that the Pentagon is ordering 3,000 additional American service members to deploy to Poland. Uh, Do you expect to see uh, even larger increases in U.S. forces on the ground in in the eastern flank of NATO? Well, I think this is a good decision, first of all, and I would hope so, because Mr. Putin, in his two letters, one of the things that he said was he wanted less troops forward, less capability and less weapons forward. And by moving these troops forward, we are showing him that he's going to get exactly what he didn't want if he carries on with his current actions. So if you keep moving towards invasion, you will get more rather than less. Uh, And that hopefully will change his mind. Susan, there's been so many efforts at diplomacy over the last week. You you mentioned Macron going to to Putin. Um, So many uh, leaders trying to de-escalate the situation. Were those efforts just completely wasted? Is there any possibility of a diplomatic solution? Well, look, uh, you know, it's always, uh, I think, jaw-jaw better than war-war up until the very last moment. And even then, beyond that moment, it's important for dialogue to continue. That certainly is the view of uh, uh, the Western allies. In fact, the German chancellor, Olaf Schulz, who was here in Washington this week, is currently scheduled, I believe, still to go see Vladimir Putin early next week. Uh, and as you mentioned, there's also a phone call that seems to be uh, as soon as tomorrow between President Biden and President Putin. So I don't anticipate that diplomatic efforts will end. It's just that right now, you heard what Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, said. Uh, he essentially said it's it's a dialogue of the deaf right now. The two sides are not engaged in a meaningful back and forth. General Breedlove, Susan Glasser, thanks to both of you. Coming up, the trucker-inspired protests on the U.S.-Canada border are driving U.S. automakers to have to take drastic actions in hopes of getting back to work. That story next. Plus, a black FedEx driver shot at by a white father and son while delivering packages in Mississippi, according to police. Now that driver is speaking out. Stay with us. In our money lead today, a state of emergency has been declared in Ontario, Canada, as protesters there refuse to end their blockades. They're protesting COVID restrictions north of the border. Today, demonstrators briefly opened one lane of traffic at the Ambassador Bridge into Detroit, Michigan. At times, two other access points have been blocked into North Dakota and Montana. We should note how this started, not with the 90% of Canadian truckers fully vaccinated, according to that country's government, but with a A fraction of those unvaccinated upset with Canada's vaccine mandate for truckers crossing into the U.S. As CNN's Lucy Kafanov reports, other opponents of COVID restrictions who are not truckers latched on. And now there are plans for similar protests in the United States. In a battle that started over vaccine mandates for truck drivers entering Canada, now a state of emergency in Ontario, Canada. The premier pushing back against blocking border crossings. It is illegal and punishable to block and impede the movement of goods, people, and services along critical infrastructure. Truckers protesting on the Canadian side of the border now facing legal action. We think that that will uh, help uh, remove the illegal blockades at border crossings that have threatened Uh, Not only the Canadian economy, but thousands of jobs that depend on that very active cross-border trade. Three Canadian U.S. border crossings in Michigan, North Dakota and Montana have been at times cut off by the demonstrations. The U.S. auto industry particularly hard hit by the protests. Michigan's governor sounding the alarm. Every minute this goes on is lost wages. It's 
damage to our businesses. This is an illegal blockade. And while people have the right to protest, they don't have a right to illegally block the largest land border crossing in North America. U.S. automakers are canceling shifts and running on reduced capacity. By one estimate, workers in Michigan could lose up to 51 million in wages just this week. Some truckers say they're frustrated by the slowdowns that have persisted for days. Keep one lane open. If they want to do their little show, let them do it. But keep a lane open. The American Trucking Association says they don't support vaccine mandates, but strongly opposes any protest activities that disrupt public safety and compromise the economic and national security of the United States. Truckers in Canada are actually vaccinated at a rate of nearly 90 percent. Yet a slow roll convoy of trucks is expected to head to a border crossing in Buffalo this weekend to support the protests, stoking fears that continued slowdowns could worsen the impact of rising inflation in the U.S. And Jake, you can see and probably hear the line of trucks behind me. The protesters here have been honking their horns. They are holding firm for now. The mayor of Windsor, Ontario, telling CNN that if these protesters don't leave one by one, they'll start towing the cars. Canada's prime minister saying that everything is on the table to end the blockades, calling on the demonstrators to go home. Meanwhile, Toronto police say they have a, a robust response prepared for possible protests in their city over the weekend. Jake. All right, Lucy Kafanov in Windsor, Ontario for us. Thank you so much. Trouble ahead. A possible Russian invasion of Ukraine isn't President Biden's only problem right now. Look at the other challenges plaguing the White House. Stay with us. And our politics lead, President Biden and Democrats seem to be in trouble with voters. A new CNN poll finds the majority of Americans say the economy will be extremely important to their vote in the midterm elections this year, just as inflation is reaching a 40-year high. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, Biden's approval rating on the economy has dropped to 37 percent. That's down eight points in just two months. Democratic voter enthusiasm is lagging as well. President Biden facing a daunting list of challenges. We are in the window when an invasion could begin at any time, should Vladimir Putin decide to order it. The national security advisor delivering that warning after Biden convened his team in the Situation Room last night amid renewed warnings that Russia could invade Ukraine at any moment. We want to be crystal clear on this point. Any American in Ukraine should leave as soon as possible and in any event in the next 24 to 48 hours. If a Russian attack on Ukraine proceeds, it is likely to begin with aerial bombing and missile attacks that could obviously kill civilians without regard to their nationality. But as Biden waits to see what move Putin makes, he's also juggling a slew of domestic challenges at home. Let's look at the reason for the inflation. The president promising all hands on deck after consumer prices skyrocketed last year, despite his predictions that inflation was only temporary and bristling when questioned about it by NBC's Lester Holt. A lot of Americans are wondering what your definition of temporary is. Well, you're being a wise guy with me a little bit. As higher prices shrink their wallets, voters have been taking notice. A new CNN poll shows that Biden's handling of the economy has dipped eight points to 37 percent since early December, and his handling of COVID-19 dropped nine points to 45 percent. I'm going to do everything in my power to deal with the big points that are are impacting most people in their homes. Biden's poll numbers started to slide last fall at the same time as the chaotic exit from Afghanistan, which Biden has continued to defend. Look, there was no good time to get out. 
But if we had not gotten out, they acknowledged that we would have had to put a hell of a lot more troops back in. He's also disputing the findings of a new Army investigative report, details of which were first published in the Washington Post, that said administration officials ignored warning signs or were in denial about what was happening on the ground in Afghanistan. No. No. That's not what I was told. The president going as far as to say he rejects the findings based on sworn testimony from several senior U.S. commanders. Are you rejecting the conclusions or the, the accounts that are in this Army report? Yes, I am. So they're not, not true? I'm rejecting them. What the president was rejecting uh, is the notion that there weren't a range of preparations done uh, in advance uh, over the course of last spring and last summer. Jake, one other major aspect of the president's to-do list is picking a Supreme Court nominee. We are told by the White House that he is not expected to have any meetings right now while he's at Camp David this this weekend, but they could start those face-to-face meetings as soon as next week, though nothing is set in stone yet. All right, Caitlin, stay there. I want to bring in CNN's Abby Phillip, uh, and let's chat about all this. Abby, 59% of voters say the economy will be extremely important to their congressional vote this year. Inflation is at a 40-year high. I want to once again show our audience what the president said when he was asked about inflation and what he had said about inflation earlier uh, by NBC's Lester Holt. You said inflation was going to be temporary. I think a lot of Americans are wondering what your definition of temporary is. Well, you're being a wise guy with me a little bit. Uh, and I understand that's your job. When can Americans expect some relief from this soaring inflation? According to Nobel laureates, 14 of them that contacted me and a number of corporate leaders, it's ought to be able to start to taper off as we go through this year. In the meantime, I'm going to do everything in my power to deal with the big points that are, that are Im- impacting most people in their homes. What do you make of that? Because I have to say, his first response is Lester Holtz being a wise guy. I've never heard Lester Holt described as a wise guy. That was a, that was that was a pretty. I mean, that was a pretty straight newsman question, yeah. right? Like you said, it was going to be temporary. It's not temporary. You know, what's your definition of temporary? Uh, and but and he bristled as if it was about his feelings, and then provided a very specific number of Nobel laureates who have apparently called him on this issue. Look, I mean, a lot of presidents actually get in that headspace where President Biden is right now. They're running the country. They're hearing from a lot of smart people telling them that the numbers look good. But the problem with that answer is that it doesn't actually capture, A, the the answer that is important to people listening to it, which is, do you understand what I am experiencing? And he gets to it later in the question where he says, okay, we're focusing on the pocketbook issues that matter. But that should have been the first part of the answer, not the second part. No one wants to be Um, you know, slapped in the face with some graphs and charts. I mean, at at the end of the day, the American people want to know, what are you going to do about it? And they want to hear from the president, I understand what you're going through. Yeah. And Caitlin, uh, even in that answer, the president continues to say that inflation is going to taper off later this year. If that doesn't turn out to be the case, uh, won't that put the president and the Democratic Party in even more trouble with voters? Well, it would almost certainly put them in trouble with voters if inflation is still very high when it comes close to the midterms. The White House is well aware of that. And I think it is notable that you're seeing President Biden when 
He makes a prediction like that one, saying that inflation would likely taper off by the end of this year. He is attributing that to forecasters. He is not saying that as his own prediction. And of course, in the past, he had been repeatedly saying transitory, transitory, transitory to describe inflation. So were his aides. And you even heard uh, the Federal Reserve chairman say that's probably not a good word to describe this, given it's clearly not temporary and has not been for the last several months. But I think that's a factor into all of this. And when you've seen the CNN polling that shows he's dropped several points, seven to nine points on the economy since early December, I think a lot of that has to do with expectations. Because, yes, people can understand that last year was unprecedented. We had two variants that came and really changed uh, expectations for how they were going to be exiting COVID-19. But the White House repeatedly describing it as something that it ended up not being, and not only describing it as temporary, but criticizing people People like Larry Summers, who were saying it's not going to be temporary, I think speaks to the expectations game and making sure people are aware of realistically what's going to happen and aware that, you know, it may not taper off and that may not go according to those forecasts. Yeah, the expectations game is not a game they have excelled at playing the Biden White House, whether it's COVID, uh, whether it's uh, inflation, uh, whether it's uh, Afghanistan. And and Abby, let's turn to that, uh, because another answer that jumped out at me from Lester Holt's interview uh, was uh, the president was asked about a recently uncovered U.S. Army uh, a report first obtained by the Washington Post that revealed that, that there were plenty of military leaders um, frustrated with the White House and the State Department officials over how the evacuation in Afghanistan, the preparation for it, uh, went down. Uh, let's take a look. It interviewed many military officials and officers who said the administration ignored the handwriting on the wall uh, another described trying to get folks in the embassy ready to evacuate, encountering uh, you know, people who are in, essentially in denial of, of this situation. Does any of that ring true to you? No. No. That's not what I was told. Are you rejecting the conclusions or the, the accounts that are in this Army report? Yes, I am. So they're not, not true? I'm rejecting them. So two things. One, he says, that's not what I was told. Okay, well, you're the president. You're supposed to be getting all this information. That's on you. There's obviously a long history of bad information weeding its way out before it goes up to the primary. Second, he says, Lester Holt asked him, you're rejecting the conclusions or the accounts. He says, yes, I am. So you're rejecting what these, like, grunts are saying to the U.S. Army, what these, like, rank-and-file soldiers and Marines are saying? Well, look, I mean, President Biden has, from the beginning, his position has been, it really doesn't matter what you all say are the consequences of doing this. I want to get out of Afghanistan at all costs. And the view inside the White House, frankly, is a reflection of the president's view on this. They believe that this was a successful effort, that he promised to get out and he got out. And maybe it looked a little bit messy, but he got out and it would have been messy for everyone. That is President Biden's view, report or no report. And the, the defiance in that answer, that, that is truly what he feels about the situation, regardless of what is being said and what has been reported by the U.S. Army itself. By the Army itself, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Abby Phillip, Caitlin Collins, thanks to both of you. And if you didn't get enough Abby Phillip, and let's be honest, who gets enough Abby Phillip? Be sure to join Abby this Sunday for Inside Politics Sunday. It's at 8 a.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up, it's not the news a lot of parents of America's youngest kids want to hear. A new announcement from the FDA. That's next. In our health lead, the flood of states changing 
COVID protocols and going against the Biden administration's recommendations is growing. There are now only six states in the U.S., plus Puerto Rico and D.C., that have still indoor mask mandates in place. As CNN's Alexander Field reports for us now, even President Biden admits the current CDC guidance is too confusing. In a country that's been so deeply divided over how to handle COVID and mask mandates, most states are now on the same page two years later. We can safely make this shift, which will also put us in, the, in line with other New England states. Rhode Island and Delaware, the latest Democratic-led states to join the growing list of states doing away with mask mandates, leaving just six states with mask mandates in place, plus Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. We're the second uh, most vaccinated state in the country right now. We're the third most um, boosted uh, in the state in the country. Governors in growing numbers turning to their own metrics for how and when to move forward in the absence of updated federal guidance. While cases fall precipitously nationwide, the CDC continues to encourage the use of masks, citing high or substantial COVID transmission in 99% of the nation's counties. Deaths remain disturbingly high. On average, more than 2,500 Americans losing their lives daily. And the pace of Americans taking extra steps to protect themselves by getting booster shots has slowed. It's now at its lowest point since the end of September. A sign, perhaps, that the precautions people do or don't take will increasingly be based on personal tolerance for the risk of getting COVID. The thing that we are doing right now is we're yo-yoing, right? We're, we're going from being from having lots of mask mandates to opening up completely, potentially. It's things like vaccinations and things like testing that are going to keep us from having to keep yo-yoing back and forth. Still, tensions remain. A man at a hot dog shop in Chicago, seen in this video, throwing snow, then smashing glass after an employee asked him to wear a mask. And a big delay for vaccines for children under five. They aren't likely to come before April. Vaccine advisors will wait to review data on three doses of the vaccine versus just two. Jake. Alexandra Field, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Dr. Ashish Jha. He's the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jha, what should we make of the FDA postponing this meeting on the Pfizer vaccine for kids under five? Is it a big deal? Yeah, Jake, first of all, thanks for having me back. Um, certainly for parents under five, it's going to feel like a big deal, and I'm very sympathetic to that. Um, you know, what I've been saying for weeks is uh, that we've got to be guided by the evidence and the data. And, and all the data so far suggests that it's exceedingly safe to vaccinate kids under five. But the question has been effectiveness. Do we have enough evidence that the, these vaccines are effective in kids under five? And what we're hearing from the FDA is they're not convinced, and they want to wait. And I know waiting has its own costs. Uh, but I've always said we've got to make sure these vaccines are safe and effective. And I think it's worth waiting uh, to make sure that that is the case. What advice would you give someone who came to you and said, we don't have mask or proof of vaccination rules anymore. So can I go to a concert again? Can I eat in a crowded restaurant? Well, first, I'd start off by saying you've got to make sure you're vaccinated and boosted, because if you're not, then you're a substantial risk of getting really sick if you get infected. Um, second, I would drive some of these decisions by kind of local community spread. Uh, some places in America, infections are way down. and other places, it's still pretty high. So for more high-risk things, I would wait a little bit longer in fact, until infections are down. And then there's also just your own risk tolerance and how risky it is. But it is this is the kind of decision-making that people are going to have to make on their own uh, moving forward. Would it matter to you if the person was over 60 or a smoker or morbidly obese, would that go into your 
your decision making for your advice? Yeah, I certainly would. And especially if you're not fully boosted. I mean, if you're boosted, look, uh, everybody's way safer boosted. But if you're not, and if you have any of those high risk conditions, then the consequences of getting infected are much, much higher. So first piece of advice, get boosted, please. But beyond that, you do have to think about your own risk and factor that factor that in in terms of what kind of things you're willing to engage in. What do you think the CDC is waiting for when it comes to changing its masking guidance? And at this point, how much does the CDC timing matter? Yeah, I think a lot of us are looking to the CDC. I think they're trying to come up with what is a workable, durable solution for guidance, what's going to uh, hold, you know, kind of fast for, for many months ahead. Uh, and the challenge is there's no single metric. There's no one thing they could pull off the uh, so I, I, my sense is they're working through it, trying to come up with guidance that is going to be sensible for the whole country. It's a complicated task. Dr. Ashish Jha, thank you so much. Good to see you again. A delivery nightmare, a FedEx driver chased and shot at while just doing his job. He speaks out. That's next. International lead, a black FedEx driver who was chased and shot at while delivering packages in Mississippi is speaking out. Police say... A white father and his son shot at DeMontario Gibson last month. The pair, Brandon and Gregory Case, have been arrested, charged, and let out on bail. Gibson talked about the incident earlier today on CNN. There was a guy standing in the middle of the road holding a gun at my vehicle telling me to stop, which I did not do. Um, they, they essentially just chased me out the city, and I had to file a police report after that. They, shots were fired into my van as well. Gibson says he felt like Ahmad Arbery, the young black man gunned down while jogging in South Georgia. CNN's Nick Valencia joins us now live from Jackson, Mississippi. And Nick, we understand Gibson was put on unpaid leave by FedEx, but now that's changed? Yeah, that's right. Gibson's attorney says as of this morning, FedEx reached out to his client after more than a week of not being in touch. They've since reinstated his pay, made it retroactive to January 31st. But DeMontario Gibson is incredibly frustrated at the fact that he was put in a rental vehicle that day going down that dirt road. He believes that put him at risk. We understand from FedEx that there was a shortage in their fleet, which is why DeMontario was in that rental vehicle. Uh, And he says it was a liability. He's not making any excuses, though, for what Brandon and Gregory Case are accused of doing. In his eyes, it is clear that he was targeted only because he's black. You're convinced that this was racism? Yes, sir. Why? I mean, what other reason would, would they be shooting at me at nighttime? I haven't said nothing to them. I have no worries. We had no type of interaction at all. All they said was me at work. And I had, like I said, I did have on a full uniform. So this is about being black in America, just doing your job while black? Yes, sir. You could have been another name, like Ahmaud Arbery. Yes, sir. Did you think about that? I did think about that, and that's why it's very important for me to speak out currently, because, like I said, they're not here to speak for themselves, so I'm going to speak for them as well as myself. Gibson says that this has changed his life, Jake. And Nick, what happens next to Brandon and Gregory Case, the alleged shooters? Well, they're out on bond right now. And according to the police chief, the case, has, the case files have been handed over to the FBI, as is their policy. They haven't confirmed that to us. But we know that the Department of Justice has received a request to review this to see if any hate crimes occurred. The district attorney also tells us that he plans, once he gets the case, he plans on putting in the hands of the grand jury, who will then consider whether or not there was an attempted murder here. That's what Gibson and his attorney want. They believe one thing is clear, that that night the cases tried to kill him. Jake. 
Nick Valencia, thanks so much. It's the big question hanging over the Olympic Games right now. Will Russia's top figure skater get to take the ice again? The answer is now up to a court. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, icy reaction. The International Olympic Committee now taking Russia and superstar skater Kamila Valeva to court after the 15-year-old failed a drug test and the decision could land Team USA with a new gold medal. Plus, not supposed to happen. Two Democratic senators raising a major red flag about the CIA allegedly spying on Americans. The ACLU claiming this was done without court approval and demanding this invasion of our privacy must stop. So what data did the CIA get their hands on? And new this hour, do not touch those boxes. That warning from a senior Trump official as the former president headed out of the White House. We have some brand new CNN reporting for you on how classified documents improperly ended up at Mar-a-Lago. And as CNN's Pamela Brown reports, why it took so many months for the National Archives to get those records back. Winehouse aides began the process of collecting documents that needed to be turned over to the National Archives soon after Trump lost the November election. But while Trump was trying to figure out how to remain in power, the once standard process seems to have gone awry. Multiple sources tell CNN it was chaotic, with no one ensuring protocols were followed at the end. They rigged an election. They rigged it like they've never rigged an election before. It wasn't until May of last year that the archives noticed several items were missing from their catalog of Trump White House records. Significant items like letters he exchanged with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un and an infamous Sharpie altered map of Hurricane Dorian. Longtime National Archives lawyer Gary Stern first reached out to a former Trump White House counsel attorney hoping to locate the missing items and initiate their swift transfer, according to multiple sources familiar with the matter. Sources say Stern, frustrated by the pace of the turnover, sought the intervention of another Trump attorney in October. Also, last fall, a top official in Trump's orbit was concerned that classified documents have been brought to Mar-a-Lago and warned people not to touch the boxes out of fear that sensitive material could be exposed to those without the proper clearance. The situation becoming so tense that sources tell CNN the archives warned Trump's team it planned to notify Congress and the Justice Department if this wasn't resolved quickly. Trump says something different, claiming the boxes taken to Mar-a-Lago contain letters, records, newspapers, magazines, and various articles that are to be featured in his presidential library someday. The papers were given easily and without conflict and on a very friendly basis, he said. The archives has since asked Justice Department officials to investigate Trump's handling of White House records, including whether he violated the Presidential Records Act. Separately, the House Oversight Committee is launching an investigation. Critics crying hypocrisy, especially since Trump attacked Hillary Clinton over her handling of emails. People who have nothing to hide don't smash phones with hammers. They don't. People who have nothing to hide don't bleach. Nobody's ever heard of it. Don't bleach their emails or destroy evidence to keep it from being publicly archived as required under federal law. The Mar-a-Lago documents only the latest revelation about record keeping. 
CNN has reported Trump repeatedly ripped up documents and... Staff in the White House residence where the president lived, uh, you know, were discovering that the toilets were clogged. uh, And when engineers went in to go see what was happening, there were, you know, clumped up wads of, of paper, you know, apparently notes or documents. Former White House National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster told CNN that when he was in the White House, his staff had a foolproof system for their own record keeping. If the staff is running it well, everything that goes in uh, to the Oval Office should, is logged in. Everything the president sees should be logged in. I can't speak about what happened after I left. And as of now, the DOJ has not said whether it is investigating this. And a spokesperson for Trump has not responded to CNN's request for a comment. We do want to note that Trump did say in a statement that the toilet flushing claim was simply made up. But, Jake, I just spoke to a source familiar with the matter tonight who tells me that this issue with the document turnover has not been fully resolved. As you'll recall, the National Archives statement earlier this week hinted at that, saying Trump representatives were still locating documents to turn over. Jake? All right, Pamela Brown, thanks so much. Uh, let's discuss uh, Linda Chavez. Let me start with you, and I'm going to remove the toilet part of this conversation <laughs> for the time being. Um, you've worked in a White House. How easily does something like this happen where confidential documents are dropped into the wrong box and end up thousands of miles away? Well, it certainly never happened uh, in my knowledge when I was in the White House. I will tell you, I had above top secret clearance, so I got documents that really had to be carefully guarded. I had a safe in my office. And if I had to get up to go to the restroom and I happened to be in the middle of reading something, I had to put it in the safe, lock it up, uh, wait to retrieve it when I got back. This just simply is not done. And and Margaret, um, you know, you heard in Pamela's report, um, there was a top Trump official who told aides, do not touch those boxes. You might not have the right security clearance. So clearly there were some people in Trump's orbit who knew the importance of the documents. Yeah, I think this is going to be one of the big questions now is who was in charge of it's not like the president, you know, former president himself is rifling through boxes trying to figure out what to grab or maybe he was, oh, we well, don't know. Um, but the, you, some, can't, <laughs> you can't say anything. Yeah. Can't say anything. But uh, a couple of key questions is like um, what are the uh, legal thresholds uh, if this were to go to the justice department and remember as long as he was president, he had the ability to declassify. So it, it then the question becomes, well, if they're declassified, can everyone else see them? And so everyone will want to see what these documents are. But it, it actually may be a little bit more difficult to, to prosecute this if that is what the former president did. There are going to be a lot of questions about who had their hands on this, who was directing this, and at whose direction they were directing that. So, Tia, I know from the Hillary Clinton email controversy and scandal in 2015, 16, 17, uh, that a lot of Republican officials uh, are very concerned uh, about uh, the top secret clearance and information uh, not going into the wrong places. So I assume, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that many top Republican officials have come out today uh, and decried what the National Archives found here. Well, you'll probably be disappointed to hear that is not the case. Um, Republicans have mostly been silent. You know, a lot of times when they don't want to contradict their previous statements, they'll just conveniently... um, not respond. So we're, we're seeing a lot of silence from Republican members. And we know it's not going to be the same. We know that the way they came, uh, uh, the way they came to Hillary Clinton was partisan and it wasn't equal to the way they have responded to many of the controversies from former President Trump. And so this is just another one on the list where 
um, Republicans are not holding him accountable in the same way they've held Democrats for similar behavior or, quite frankly, even less serious behavior. That you were you not surprising to you, Sochi? <laughs> not surprising to me at all. I worked at the Justice Department, and I will tell you, we were not getting rid of documents in any way. Um, but what I will say is this is general disregard for the rule of law. We lived through four years of Trump. We've seen this before. This is the way that he's acted. And Republicans have been silent about the whole thing, right? And then it, he was not reelected, and nor were Republicans. And so the interesting thing is Republicans want Trump to go away. And right now we're sitting here on national television talking about exactly what the former president did. So let me stick with you for a second, mm -hmm. um, because I let you say that. And now I want to ask you about um, some <laughs> CNN polling that you might not be happy about talking about. So this new CNN poll show about the midterms, 42 percent of voters say they prefer a congressional candidate who opposes President Biden, as opposed to 32 percent of voters who prefer a candidate that supports President Biden. Democrats seem to be vulnerable uh, in the midterms, usually, I guess, if, a, if, a, if a, the incumbent president is above 50 percent in, in approval rating, they still lose like 15 seats, 14 seats. If they're below 50 percent, it could be 35, 40 seats. Well, the midterms are always tough for the party in power, as we all know. I, I think that this is in large part to COVID fatigue, and I think that the president understands that, and so do a lot of these candidates right now. And so that's what you've seen in states, them lift COVID restrictions because they understand that people are just sick of this. Also inflation, though, don't you think? Well, I, I do think that inflation does play a big part of it, but I think the biggest um, hurdle for the White House and for Democrats right now is how do you, um, how, what do you do with the disconnect between the poll numbers and what is happening with the economy? The economy is booming right now. You had 6.6 .6 million jobs that were created under um, President Biden. And, and there is people feel better than they did a year ago. The first year of Biden, we all feel a lot better than we did under Donald Trump. So then how do we reconcile that? And how do we tell that to the American people? And right now, if I were a Democrat, I'd be saying, well, we got to spend money to tell people exactly how we've helped them in their lives. And that's why you've seen states make some of these changes in their COVID protocols. Uh, generally speaking, that's always the answer when your poll numbers are bad. It's just that we're not getting out and telling our message the right way. And that's it's simply all, It's not. a comms problem. Yeah, it's not a comms problem. <laughs> Look, I think there is a problem uh, with President Biden and the way in, he, in which he communicates. I and mean, he's been very snarky on the inflation issue. I mean, he, he takes it out on reporters who ask him inflation questions, and that does not play well. There is a serious problem with inflation. And this administration has got to get a handle on how it is they are going to change uh, the trajectory of upward uh, prices. Now, some of it's not in their control. Presidents don't control the economy when it's as large as complex as ours. But it's more than a comms problem. People are not happy with the president. Yeah, that's I think that's the biggest point that I think perhaps it's not getting communicated to the American people is that we say we want a free market society and we want businesses to be able to do what they want and set prices the way they want. And some businesses are taking advantage of this moment to raise prices and recoup some of their losses during the peak of the pandemic. And do we want that free market that allows businesses to raise prices? Well, then that's leading to inflation. Yeah. And that's not necessarily inside of the president's control, because if he tries to control businesses and pricing, that will bring another wave of criticism from a different um, direction. I want to take, um, go ahead. I was going to say, I look at these poll numbers, this new CNN poll numbers, there's nothing good in it uh, for President Biden. It's not just the economy that's down, it's 37% approval. 
It's COVID handling that's down. It's well below 50% now, 45%. That's and he used to have a pr- majority drop. support on that, yeah. Once upon a time, he had that. Now you've got the twin problem of people who are frustrated that it's not over yet and the people who are frustrated that we still have to wear masks and, right. and show that we've been vaccinated. And just all of that, it all pushes down on him. It pushes down on the party. People have lost, independents have lost faith. The independent numbers are worse than they were for Obama at the midterms in this cycle. It's all bad right now. And that was a shellacking of uh, Obama shellacking. In, the, in 2010. Uh, speaking of midterms, I want to show you an, an ad, a Republican Senate candidate in Arizona, uh, facing bipartisan condemnation for a new ad he released, showing him taking on Biden and Pelosi and current Arizona Senator Mark Kelly in an Old West-themed gun battle. We're tired of being pushed around. And open borders. And gas prices. The good people of Arizona have had enough of you. It's time for a showdown. Jim Lehman, and I approve this message. I mean, to state the obvious, uh, Senator Mark Kelly's wife, Gabby Giffords, was literally shot in the head while serving in Congress in a, in a tragic incident. Six people were killed in that attack in, in, in Tucson. I mean, how does this even make it on TV? Uh, it's terrible, and apparently their plans are to air it, at least in Tucson and Phoenix, during the Super Bowl. That's a very expensive buy. But one thing that they have accomplished is we're all talking about it and therefore talking about him, Jim Lehman, who is the person who's running that ad. And it remains to be seen. There are a whole lot of people in Arizona who are not going to find this offensive, unfortunately. Another Senate, Senate candidate, especially this, this time from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, TV's Dr. Oz is running in the Republican primary there. His opponents say he's, quote, to Hollywood. Today, Dr. Oz walked right into that criticism. He participated in the unveiling of his star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's even kissing it. Um, I mean... So, first of all, I wonder about the political advice he's getting. Second of all, I wonder about the medical advice he's getting. If you're kissing the star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, I got some bad news for you about what was done on that, uh, that spot just like an hour before. No, that's, act- that's exactly right. I think that we're all talking about it here, but um, at the same time, I think that I, don't, I do not know who is giving him medical advice. But to the ad featuring Mark Kelly, I will say that that, is, that primary is a race to the right. And... They are not reading what is happening in Arizona. They are all trying to impress Trump right now. And Trump didn't win Arizona. And you have on the other side, Mark Kelly, who is measured. Everyone who knows Mark Kelly knows that he's not the one trying out there, to, going out there to make headlines. He's trying to fight for people of Arizona and he's a measured candidate. So the contrast is quite stark. And I don't think this helps anybody. Thanks one and all for being here. Have a great weekend. Uh, the price of grief, the Biden administration clearing the way. For September 11th, families to get paid using Afghanistan's money. We're going to talk to a 9-11 widow about what this might mean for her and for her family. Then things are heating up off the ice in China. New details about the future of Russia's 15-year-old superstar skater who failed a drug test. Stay with us. In our national lead today, President Biden signed an executive order that will split $7 billion in frozen funds from Afghanistan's central bank between victims of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks and Afghan humanitarian aid. The Taliban were claiming rights to the $7 billion, which does belong to Afghanistan, but the U.S. government denied the Taliban's request after the fall of the U.S.-backed government last August for months. The Biden administration has been weighing how to proceed, and families of the 9-11 victims were pursuing financial compensation from the Taliban for years. So, 
Biden has decided to do this. $3.5 billion will go towards providing relief inside Afghanistan, desperately needed. And the remaining $3.5 billion will be, quote, subject to the ongoing litigation by U.S. victims of terrorism. And one of those family members joins us now, Terry Strada, the widow of Tom Strada. He was on the 104th floor of the North Tower. She's the national chair for the 9-11 Families United. It's so good to see you, uh, Terry. Um, it's been more than 20 years since the attacks. I wonder, will this money provide any sort of compensation or, or closure beyond uh, financial To a very small degree. I mean, the financial part definitely will help the children, my children, you know, money um, will always alleviate problems that they have in their lives. But as far as closure goes or, you know, make me feel like, okay, we finally are vindicated. No, absolutely not. Because the Taliban just played a small role in 9-11. We are still ignoring the biggest player, and that's the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Right. And I'll get to that in a second. We should note, though, that there is, I mean, losing a a husband and a father and somebody who made money, like, that is a big loss of income that you and your family suffered, though, right? I mean, there is a financial importance here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, but we've managed 20 years to get through, you know, the past two decades. And yes, like I said, the money will alleviate and help my children, you know, immensely, all the children that lost their parents, and the families that were really left destitute. Um, money will be a good thing for everyone, but it doesn't bring us the justice that we deserve and that we're fighting for. So you are uh, involved in this long-running lawsuit against Saudi Arabia, uh, and most of the, the 9-11 terrorists were from Saudi Arabia. What do you say to the people who say, this is just penalizing this move today, um, the Afghan people who are suffering greatly, um, and they shouldn't be uh, hurt um, because of what happened on 9-11, as you note, Uh, The Taliban played a a relatively small role compared to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so I have great sympathy for the Afghani people, and I hope and pray that 3.5 billion in addition, we've given them about 800 million in aid since September, since the fall, and I hope that that 4.3 billion finds its way through these humanitarian aid organizations, you know, where it belongs, and it will give the Afghani people some relief. Um, The fact is the Taliban did play a role in 9-11 and we have had judgments against them for 20 years. And, you know, we are entitled to fighting for what we fight for what's right as well as they do. Um, So I hope it works for them and I hope it works out for us. Where is your lawsuit against the Saudi government going? Where is it right now? Yeah. So the Biden administration, you know, there's no way alleviates their promises that they made to the 9-11 families back when Biden took office and said that he was going to reset the relationship with the kingdom and he was going to be tough on the Saudis. He signed an executive order last September that would release information that we've been fighting for years. And unfortunately, while that was a very favorable move, it is not being implemented. The Department of Justice, FBI, CIA, intelligence agencies, DNI are still not cooperating and they are still not handing us the information and these documents that we've been asking for for our lawsuit. We can't ignore the facts that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, that 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi, that Osama bin Laden was a Saudi, that the um, charities, the Saudi charities funneled the money and that Saudi agents, the working through the Ministry of Islamic Affairs, really were the ones here in this country setting up everything. And the most important thing, Jake, that we have to pay attention to is the evil ideology. You know, it was yeah. spawned by the kingdom. It poisoned the minds of the jihadists. 
and they need to take the responsibility. And this government needs to get tough on the kingdom. We have diplomatic ways. We have foreign policies we could be implementing. And we need to stop protecting them, take the blinders off, and make them pay for what they did. Terry, before you go, uh, how are you and your family doing? You know, it, it's still challenging, Jake, believe it or not, 20 years later. Um, it just hits us all at different times. But they're managing. And um, my youngest one has actually joined the military. And he's 20 years old and has decided to you know, make a commitment to this country and fight for what's right. So I'm very proud of all three of them. My daughter, she's married now. And my oldest works for a bank in Manhattan. And um, I'm proud of them. They, they've struggled a lot, as we all have. Terry, stay in touch with us. Uh, and we continue to cover your efforts uh, to get some justice from the Saudi government. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. New accusations that the CIA was collecting data on Americans without permission. They're not supposed to do that. Stay with us. And our national lead, some newly declassified documents allege that the CIA may have collected data from Americans, even though the spy agency is only supposed to focus on acquiring foreign intelligence. Now two senators, Democrats, Ron Wyden of Oregon and Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, are raising concerns about how this could have happened and what is being done to stop it. So let's bring in CNN's Katie Bo Lillis. Katie Bo, first of all, what do we know about what data specifically the CIA collected that, that is called, being called into question? Yeah, Jake, so these two lawmakers have made some pretty dramatic allegations here. They say that the Senate Intelligence Committee has a report that shows that for years the CIA has been collecting intelligence in bulk and that some of that data has been Americans' data, and that they have been sifting through it in ways that these two lawmakers say raise some real concerns about privacy and civil liberties. Now, the CIA is saying that they can't declassify either the report itself or information about the underlying intelligence programs themselves because it would damage sources and methods, the real sort of crown jewels by which the CIA goes about doing its business. Um, But what we do have are these allegations from these two lawmakers. And I want to read you um, part of what Senators Heinrich and Senator Senator Wyden are are saying. Um, They have said that this report shows that the CIA has secretly conducted its own bulk program and that it has done so entirely outside the statutory framework that Congress and the public believe govern this collection and without any of the judicial, congressional, or even executive branch oversight that comes with FISA collection, which is the law that governs FBI surveillance. This basic fact, these lawmakers say, has been kept from the public and from Congress. Now, the CIA has has pushed back on this. The CIA has said not only was the Senate Intelligence Committee kept fully informed of, of what it was doing and how it was doing it, um, but also that they complied with all of the necessary regulations that are designed to protect Americans' information when it is collected by intelligence agencies. Now, for Wyden and Heinrich, those regulations aren't enough. What they're worried about specifically here is backdoor searches of Americans' data. And let me explain what I mean by that. The CIA is a foreign-focused intelligence agency, which means they are prohibited from collecting on Americans. They're prohibited from investigating Americans. But if an American is, for example, communicating with a target of foreign surveillance, then the CIA is able to, analysts are able to look at their, um, look at their data, they're able to search for it without a warrant. That, for Wyden and, and Heinrich, is a dangerous and unacceptable loophole. Well, especially in this era when people are having conversations around the globe all the time. Um, I, precisely. Yeah, Katie Willis, thanks so much. Uh, so let's talk about this with our resident CIA expert, Phil Mudd, a former counterterrorism officer for the CIA and also the FBI. Phil, when you see these reports, do you worry about anything? And if so, what? 
Yeah, I do. I mean, I used to watch all the, this stuff come in in vast volumes, both at the CIA and FBI, stuff like email data, phone data, financial data. And you always sit there and wonder, you know, I did grow up in the United States. I'm a U.S. citizen. What if they get my phone number? Let me tell you what I would be concerned about. And it's not necessarily the focus of this letter. It's not what the government collects. That's something the senators should look at. But it's as your reporter was talking about what the government does when they collect the information. One quick specific example. If we find a new terrorist in Afghanistan, I want to know financial transactions. I go to financial companies and find, let's say, 10,000 transactions. Five of those might come from the United States. Three of those might be U.S. citizens. The question is not whether you gather those. The question is, once you located them, could you identify them as Americans? And did you sift that stuff out? That's what I'd be concerned about, Jake. Give, give us an idea of what we're talking about here. Are we talking about text messages? Are we talking about WhatsApp messages, photographs, emails, what? Typically not. I mean, you're talking about 330 million Americans. You can't look at every single text message from every single American. I would start with thinking about data. That is, if someone is emailing a suspect email address in a place like Yemen or Afghanistan, if someone is texting a suspect number, I'm not talking about the content of the text, Jake. I'm just saying number one called number two and number two is a terrorist number. If someone is sending money to someone who's identified as a terrorist, you might have vast volumes of data. So as soon as John Doe crops up as a terrorist, I can see, wow, he's called 8,000 numbers. He, he emailed 400 people. He's got money from 20 people. You got to sift through all that. And eventually you're inevitably going to find that some of that might be U.S. persons. Then you got to say, what do I do about it? Not whether I collected it. Of course you did. What, did. what do I do once I find that stuff in my data holdings? So one thing we've learned from the declassified documents is CIA analysts get a pop-up window warning them that their search might involve Americans and that would require a warrant. But analysts also don't have to keep records of their searches. So the CIA's watchdog says it's difficult, if not impossible, to keep tabs on how many of these potentially illegal searches might actually happen. Right? I mean, that's, that seems to be a real issue. Uh, but sort of, let me see if I can take three hours and make it into 30 seconds, sort of. Let's say an analyst is looking through 20,000 records. One of those records might be a U.S. person, and that pop-up comes up and says, you're searching records that might might contain a U.S. person's name. You can't look through 20,000 names and assume that every single person is a U.S. person. Now, that said, let me give you the flip side of the coin. You come up on a name, it looks like that name corresponds to somebody in the United States, is that analyst then required to go through a formal process to say, I want to look at that name? That is a legitimate question. It's hard to do. That's what the Senate should focus on. My only other comment is, can you ask the CIA in person before you send letters say, accusing them of wrongdoing? That really ticks people like me off. I ticked off Phil Mudd. Always good to see you. Ticked off or not. Have a good weekend, sir. Thanks so much. Thank a picture can yeah. be worth a thousand words, especially in China. We're going to go behind China's wall to look at how the Chinese government is manipulating images to fit its narrative. Stay with us. Now our Behind China's Wall series, in which we go behind the fanfare and the glamour of the Olympic Games. The Chinese government hopes to use the Games to distract the world from its crackdowns on freedoms, its crimes against humanity, its genocide. From tennis player Peng Shui's calm presence in the stands to the Uyghur athlete at the center of the opening ceremony, 
These Olympic Games may be the ultimate display of pro-Chinese government propaganda. From Beijing, CNN's David Culver gives us this closer look. A picture may be worth far more than a thousand words when it gets beamed onto the jumbotron during the Olympic Games. IOC President Thomas Bach with Peng Shuai watching free skiing superstar Eileen Gu win gold for China. All just one day after Peng again retracted a sexual assault allegation aimed at a powerful former Chinese national leader. Bach appearing to be in line with China's narrative that Peng is just fine. That narrative strengthened by the success and happiness of Gu, an American athlete who chose Team China. Beijing. Thomas Bach owns these games. It is his reputation. He made the choice. He has decided to not focus on the Me Too aspect of the Peng Shui story. Beijing was always going to be a controversial choice to host the Olympics, the seat of power for a country accused of crushing dissent, of threatening neighbors, of genocide against its own Uyghur Muslim minority, claims China has denied. While the U.S. and like-minded countries politically boycotted the opening ceremony in protest of China's human rights record, China chose a Uyghur athlete to light the Olympic cauldron, a thumbing of the nose at the country's calling out Beijing for alleged genocide as state media showed her family cheering from her home in Xinjiang. It was a way of saying, we will continue to manipulate uh, this population and put forward our version of reality and deny atrocity crimes, even in the context of the opening ceremonies of the games. The United States' so-called genocide remarks is a great lie of the century, China's foreign ministry blasted. But it's not a lie, say multiple governments and scores of Uyghur Muslims interviewed over the years by CNN. Really, from the get-go, Xi Jinping has used this as an opportunity to project a particular perception of the Chinese government and its role in the world on the rest of the world and get the rest of the world to buy into that. For Beijing, the Olympics is an opportunity for political gain. During the parade of delegations at the opening ceremony, state media announcers introducing the self-governed democracy Taiwan as China Taipei instead of Chinese Taipei, implying its sovereignty over the island. Then, during the performance, they used a lost dove reunited with the flock, widely seen as symbolizing China's unification with Taiwan, politicized moments on bold display to the world. Whether the West is watching or not, game broadcasters say no Winter Olympics has been followed this keenly in China. Once again, the audience for much of China's political messaging is at home. And Jake, China has repeatedly blasted the U.S. for politicizing these games. But it's really tough to argue that there was any bigger geopolitical statement made than at the opening ceremony a week ago. President Xi welcoming his good friend and guest of honor, President Putin. The two strongman leaders calling it a new era. That Russia factor, Jake, more relevant today than ever before. All right, David Culver in Beijing, thank you so much. Also in China, in our sports lead, the fate of 15-year-old Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva hangs in the balance after it was revealed that she failed a doping test that was taken ahead of the Olympic Games. The result of that test came to light after she helped Russia win gold in the figure skating team event early, earlier this week. But Valieva's ability to receive that gold medal and compete in the rest of the games will be decided at an urgent hearing in the Court of Arbitration for Sport. The International Olympic Committee is pushing for her suspension. CNN contributor Christine Brennan joins us live to discuss this controversy. And Christine, 
just to be clear here, Russia knew back in December that she had failed a doping test, right? She took the test, Jake, December 25th. And so, of course, the people around her knew, the adults. Uh, there's A 15-year-old doesn't make this decision by herself. The test result only became known February 8th. That is a ridiculous length of time to not know. Of course, leaving lots of questions of sometime in January did they find out? Have they covered it up? All kinds of questions we don't know. But yeah, I mean, Russia is a doping nation. And here is a, another athlete who's, uh, who's cheating, and sadly. And so, of course, they had to know. What will be discussed in this hearing uh, that will decide Valieva's fate? Yes. Well, in this, the first hearing, there may well be two. The first will be about whether or not the Russians were allowed to let her continue to practice. She should be suspended right now, and she's not. So the IOC is saying she should be suspended, which is finally good to hear from them, Jake. After about 48 hours of, of hemming and hawing, I finally asked, are you for drugs or against drugs? Uh, and sure enough, they've come out with that answer. They want her out of the Olympics, as harsh as that sounds. They are against doping. There could be one more CAS hearing, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, if, in fact, the Russians then appeal an expected loss, and then the merits of the case will be looked at. That's the drug test, the B sample, every single piece of this. And this all has to happen, of course, before Tuesday. And what's the potential fallout if she is suspended? Yeah, well, if she is suspended, Russia will be furious. Um, but Russia, as you have alluded to in, in past conversations, Russia shouldn't even be here. Uh, they are the, one of the worst state-sponsored doping nations ever, and certainly the worst we've ever seen since East Germany. And the fact they keep getting let in without their flag or their anthem, which is just silliness, is extraordinary. So they'll, they'll be angry. Uh, maybe this will lead to them finally being tossed out of an Olympics completely in Paris or uh, in Milan the next summer or winter games. Uh, the flip side, though, Jake, is even worse. If she is not uh, removed from the games, then these games are tainted forever. How in the world can you have a drug cheat winning potentially two Olympic gold medals? I mean, it's cliche at this point to invoke uh, Colonel Renault from um, uh, from Casablanca saying he's shocked, shocked to find gambling going on in this establishment as he's holding his winnings. Um, but what does the International Olympic Committee expect? You let the Russians dope. Uh, you let them compete, even though they've been dinged for doping. Yes, it's not under the Russia flag. It's under the Republic. I mean, the Russian uh, uh, Olympic Committee uh, flag, the Russian Committee flag. But it, of course, they're going to keep doping. There's no actual punishment. Jake, this is exactly what you get. Frankly, the IOC deserves this. They have been just playing along with Russia for the last and Putin who, of course, hosted those 2014 games where that, I'm sure many people remember the doping with the urine going through the hole in the wall, clean urine coming back. That was the Olympics that, that Putin hosted. And uh, they've been doing this now for eight years. And the IOC has let them do it. And finally, 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 it has blown up. And I, we can only imagine how the Chinese are feeling right now with the Russians literally stealing their Olympics with a story that has just swallowed up everything else at these games. Christine Brennan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the numbers behind one of the most watched games in the world. That's next. In today's sports lead is the sporting event seen in more than 180 countries and territories, translated into 25 languages in a stadium that seats 70,000 fans on Sunday. All eyes will be on the Super Bowl as the Los Angeles Rams take on the underdog Cincinnati Bengals. Now, usually CNN senior data reporter Harry Anson is crunching political and economic numbers. Today, 
a quite different assignment. Harry, first of all, where does the Super Bowl rank when it comes to TV viewership? It's numero uno in America. Numero uno. And it's not even close to anything else. More than 90 million Americans tuned in to the last Super Bowl. And of course, what's interesting is if you look at the most watched, the next three were also NFL games, but all of those came in at well under half of the people who watched uh, Super Bowl 55. Now, here's the thing that I really do love, though, which is it's not just about the Super Bowl. It's also about the post-Super Bowl broadcast, right? Last year, it was the equalizer. 20 million people tuned into that. That was the fourth highest of any non-Super Bowl or non-NFL TV broadcast. And of course, the the post-Super Bowl show oftentimes is a chance to premiere programming. This year, it's the Olympics. Uh, In past years, the Wonder Years and Family Guy premiered as post-Super Bowl shows. Some come from the game, of course. Some come for the commercials. Uh, Why do most people watch? Because obviously this is not average football fans. Yeah, I mean, look, I watch for the game. I like the game. Most people who tune in watch for the game. If you look at the polling, you see it's 58% tune in for the football game. 24% though tune in for the commercials. 13% for the halftime show. I really don't know who that 2% is for the (laughs) pregame shows, but whatever. There you go. Snacks uh, seem to be usually a, a very important part of, of the celebration itself. This is a, a, a communal event in many ways. It, it absolutely is. And I'm saving up. I had salmon for lunch today so I can gorge, gorge on Sunday. And I'm going to be gorging on chicken wings. And the polling shows us that's, in fact, what a lot of people be gorging on. 33% say their favorite Super Bowl food is chicken wings. 19% say pizza. Chili is 5%. I don't really get that. And I'm not sure why they asked the difference between nachos and chips and dip. But there we are. They're also there. You're from Buffalo, aren't you? You don't have Buffalo wings? No, I, I, no, no, no. I'm not from Buffalo. I'm from the Bronx. I just like the Bills because they're the only New York team. Doesn't make any sense. Who do fans want to win this year's Super Bowl? They want the Bengals. They want the underdog. They want the Bengals. 57% of those who have a preference want the Bengals. Just 43% want the Los Angeles Rams. But, of course, the thing that's so interesting is I think most of us want a good game. And what we know from the past is that the games have been getting better the last few years. In fact, if you compare this century's game, Super Bowls, the median winning margin was eight points versus 16 points in the last century. And as you pointed out in the beginning, the Rams are favored to win, but just by five. So I'm really, really hoping that we get a good game, because if I get a good game, plus those chicken wings and the family or the people that I'm going to be with, it's going to be a great day. I feel like I deserve it. You do deserve it, Harry. Of course you do. You deserve, ha- you. you deserve happiness. I've told you this before. Thank you. And so do you. And so do our viewers. Thank you so much. Also in the sports lead, a shout out to my hometown and one of Philly's finest. That's Philadelphia Eagles safety Anthony Harris making good on a promise to 11-year-old Audrey Soap. See, Audrey lost her father and her grandfather last year. And Audrey's mom is a big fan of Anthony Harris. And when a father-daughter dance came up at a church... Audrey's mom reached out to Anthony Harris. The Eagle told TMZ Sports loss in his own family inspired him to say yes. When COVID really hit, um, you know, I lost a loved one and I shared a photo of me, you know, going to the game and I had uh, cleats in memory of my uh, my grandfather who passed away. When I got the message about potentially, you know, um, you know, being able to take her to the dance, I thought it would be a great way to, you know, uplift her. Um, you know, and utilize my platform that I've been blessed with to try and, you know, brighten people day and, and be a blessing to others. Anthony Harris traveled all the way to Austin, Texas to escort Audrey to that dance, even telling the Washington Post 
He put Audrey's hair and makeup on his tab. God bless Anthony Harris. God bless the Philadelphia Eagles. It's an addictive word game, and for one mother, it's also a lifesaver. How Wordle helped save her life. Stay with us. International lead, could Wordle save your life? For 80-year-old Denise Holt of Illinois, the answer is yeah. She shares the results, Denise, from the online puzzle Wordle with her daughter Meredith every day. But, but last Sunday, she did not send her score to her daughter, who was surprised, and texted her mom, got no response. So she called the local police and said, please, check in on my mom. And when cops showed up, they discovered Holt had been held hostage in her own home for nearly 24 hours by a naked intruder armed with knives. Remarkably and thankfully, she was physically unhurt, and the intruder is now facing felony charges. To my own kids and, frankly, Twitter followers, all the more reason for me to continually to share my Wordle scores with you, no matter how irritating you claim to find it. It is literally a lifesaver. Joining me Sunday for State of the Union, my guest this weekend, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Maryland Republican Governor Larry Hogan, Sunday morning, 9 o'clock Eastern, and again at noon. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. You can listen to The Lead as a podcast if you miss it. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Jim Acosta in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 